All right, I'm Nicolette, and today Brian and I are here with Paul Lockhart. He is the CEO of Novosphere, and he's got a fun history um, in space as well, so we'll be excited to talk a little bit about that. Um, Paul's going to talk to us about the new technology coming out of Novosphere, and it's pretty relevant to today. So thank you for joining us, Paul. We really appreciate your time. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I'm anxious to learn more about you all as well. Awesome. Well, before we get started, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your journey to Novosphere? Oh, sure. So it's a pretty long arc, but uh, there's been a few decades behind it. So um, it's been a fun and interesting one. So as a young boy, I watched the first space launches that really energized me. And I thought, well, since I grew up in Texas, I probably won't have a chance to be a cowboy, but the astronaut was the next best thing, right? You got silver suits, you do things that move fast. It's kind of really interesting. And all of television watched it, uh, you know, in the 1960s, uh, you know, ending up with the uh, moon landing in 69. But sometime uh, in college was when I made that decision that I didn't want to be an astronaut, that I will be an astronaut. And that's a big difference. I ended up having to make that mindset and make some decisions that set me on my path to where I wanted to be. Uh, and that's a side story. So I joined the military, became a pilot and a test pilot. And I found that that journey in and of itself was, was just as important to me in, in my career in life as having been an astronaut. But I spent time over uh, in Europe during the Cold War, had a chance to be part of our forces over there, Desert Storm, um, and supported that, and then went in to become a test pilot. And then in 96, I got uh, my first opportunity to apply to NASA, and I got the big rejection. So, <laughs> so I tried to improve myself a little bit more. Um, and then on my second application to NASA, I was selected to be a part of uh, Group 16. And uh, we were the largest group of astronauts to come into NASA. And our, our objective at that time was to help build out the International Space Station and to live upon it for a long time. Uh, and so I was part of that construction crew. And the vehicle that did the construction that took us everywhere was the space shuttle, as you can see. So I have that. I have I that from, from Texas. Yes, I got it when I was there. Now you know. So it's like a big UPS truck, right? I got yeah. a big, big cargo bay. And it happened to be the only thing that was capable of carrying anything large to space. So the big pieces of the space station. Uh, and so over the course of about 13 years, we, we built the space station actually a little bit longer. And I had the great fortune to, um, to be a part of two of those missions. And mm -hmm. in 2002, I was on STS. So Space Transportation System 111 and then STS 113 uh, to build out the uh, space station. And uh, soon after that, if you recall, we lost the Space Shuttle Columbia, and that was a major event at NASA and delayed our return to flight for a while. And at the same time, the Air Force was getting engaged in um, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so I chose to go back into the Air Force. And then that's what brought me then to the Washington, D.C. area, which is where I live now. I ended up retiring from the military there went into the private industry and supported some companies that uh, do uh, engineering services to, um, to NASA and the Air Force and mm -hmm. learned about that side. In other words, how can I support the astronauts rather than be, be the front person? And surprisingly, at the same time, my wife, who's a much better half, actually, and she's much more accomplished than I am, uh, she started a company after having been the director of Air Force Weather that builds sensors and advanced technology for drones. So 
I went and supported her for about five, six years. And then, and this brings us to Novosphere, I met another veteran at a conference that my wife sent me to. And he was enthusiastic about helping our vets, uh, specifically the VA, um, Veterans Administration, and NASA by helping build what he called rarefied environments, rarefied air environments, and that is clean rooms. And I was quite familiar with those, um, having been at NASA in the design and development of satellites and so forth. And as an aside, he said, and this was pre-COVID, he said, oh, by the way, we're developing this um, this uh, device that kills pathogens. And I thought, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. You can use that with your clean rooms and so forth. So I agreed to help join his company. And we started down the path to um, begin this company called Novosphere and then the pandemic hit. And so it became very relevant to, um, you know, continue with the uh, pathogen elimination device. And so here we find ourselves about eight months later, having gone through the design and development, the creation of Novosphere, and now speaking with you. So hopefully that was a, a little microcosm picture of how you and I are speaking today. And I'm very pleased to be here, as I said. That was so exciting. <laughs> you're awesome. You're, all, you're yeah, awesome. Yeah, that was a nice little, uh, you had a lot of accomplishments in there. I know. The military twice and NASA, multiple space missions. That's, that's amazing. That's amazing. That is so exciting. Oh my goodness. I don't know where to start. Um, I... <laughs> Uh, first, Nicola and I have both been to NASA a couple of times. I, yeah, we were we were, <laughs> we're, we're, we're big fans. Yes. In Texas. So. Exciting. Oh, really? Down Johnson Space Center then? Yeah, we've been oh. to Johnson Space Center. Yeah. Well, excellent. So that's where I lived for seven years. Yeah. Did you live, you lived on, on like the base when you were an astronaut? So we were just off and okay. that's where um, NASA with its 10 centers of expertise. Mm -hmm scattered throughout the United States. All the astronauts live and do their basic training and education at Johnson Space Center. Uh -huh. Kennedy Space Center is for the launch of the vehicles, right? And then the assembly and the refurbishment. And then the other centers scattered from California to Cleveland to Virginia and other places. Those do the other critical work for our nation that NASA does for aircraft and understanding uh, the atmosphere and the earth sciences and so forth. So right. I've got some pictures to show you that come from those, from those places as well in a bit. Awesome. So Paul, you know, you know, one of the things that we obviously want to talk about is the, is the UBC technology, but you mentioned your wife and, and some of the work you did with her and drones are really popular among our audience. So I figured we might want to go there just briefly and, and um, just talk about the, the science behind the pollutants and the, the aerosols and how they contaminate environments and what this has to do with autonomous drone operation. Yeah, it sure does. And I'm really pleased that you asked that question. So she does, she does work with the big drones. That's the first ones that she did. So when you think of drones, you think of a, uh, of a person that's on the ground operating one of these quad, quadcopters that are flying or perhaps one that's fixed wing, but they're in close proximity. But for our um, forces right now that are providing help to our military personnel around the world, um, many times those pilots are located 6,000 miles away. So they're not in the cockpit. Mm -hmm. So that's in a sense, the equivalent of you starting to drive in your car, but you're staying at home and you're not in your car and your eyes are not there looking out ahead of you and seeing, oh, what's on the road ahead of me? 
Is the weather there? Is there icing on the road? And so these operators were flying these, um, these big drones. And unfortunately, all of the sensors that they had would be pointing to the ground because that's their mission. Right. And they found that they were flying into adverse weather. That's the term we use. But you can say thunderstorms, whatever. And we would lose those. And of course, no one wants to lose an asset like that. But once they found out how important these drones became, and then as they move into autonomy, they become even more important. Uh, they found that they could put more and more expensive sensors on those. And so they said, well, we can't afford to lose those anymore. And so they turned to my wife and said, what kind of a solution can you do? And she said, well, it's pretty simple. Let's put, a, let's put an atmospheric sensor that samples the air. And then let's take a weather model that's used, like the one that NOAA puts out, the National Weather Service. And of course, the Air Force and the Navy does too. And so does the UK. And let's improve those models because once they're released, they age out over the six to eight hours until the next one is. They just deviate from what's really happening. But if you bring in real-time information, then you can correct that and you can provide that operator real-time data as, well, where are the clouds? Where is the icing? Think of it a little bit like Waze for your car, which you've driven. So you use Waze to know where the traffic is because it's crowdsourced. Right. Yeah. Okay. You get other inputs. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what we're doing. We're bringing in as many inputs as we can. And that lets the operator know, well, gee, in 30 minutes, where do I have to be to stay out of clouds and things like gotcha. So it's really exciting work. And then it trickles down to the smaller drones. And then not only are you just measuring the standard temperature, pressure, relative humidity, just the standard atmospheric characteristics, but you can start to measure aerosols. You can start to measure contaminants. And NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, is very keen on this because we want to know on our coastlines, uh, what is the condition of the air? For example, uh, she supported NOAA and the Navy in Barrow, Alaska. That's to the far north, right? That's on the very far north. And NOAA has a responsibility along with, the, uh, along with Alaska as a state to track certain types of whales as they migrate. Mm -hmm. Well, it's dangerous flying because of the weather conditions. And so they want to start using drones there. But you've got to characterize the atmosphere. What are the pollutants there? Can you do so safely? And so it's a really exciting discipline. And we get really excited young adults that come work with us. That's the best part. They get all that energy going. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> so, so now let's, let's segue to um, where we are now. Now, um, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are concerned with viruses and, and, you know, we hear a lot about this UBC light. Right. Um, now, what, what is Novasphere doing? What is this technology that you guys are working on? So our long-term vision is to apply the same sort of integrated solution that I learned in the military and at NASA to a problem. In other words, bring in as much information as you can and look at the long-term effects and provide solutions in a holistic integrated manner that is self-autonomous and self-monitoring and can warn the user of the status of the, at the atmosphere or whatever system you're working in. And so our long-term 
vision for Novosphere is to be able to provide that type of understanding to a user. In other words, to be able to characterize the environment that you're either working in, living in, uh, publicly sitting or standing in, or doing whatever you may be playing in, and then understand that, characterize it, and that's a big word I know, but that just means to be able to, to, um, to bring in samples and then to detect what sort of particulates or pollutants or pathogens may be in there, and then to apply the right technology to optimize for whatever it is that you're doing. So that's our long-term vision. And that could be a clean room for NASA, which means, or for a semiconductor industry, which means right. there can be no particulates, right? right. So that you don't contaminate any of the, the very sensitive electronic components. Or it could be, in my mind, um, if you have a large gathering of people, what is the right combination of temperature and, um, you know, mixture of gases and things of this nature so that you optimize a, a group's efficiency to, to do whatever they're doing. Um, but as I said, we were starting to develop at the same time this device to just kill pathogens. And we knew that that would be part of an integrated solution. However, when the pandemic hit, we said, well, that is what we probably need to accelerate the mm -hmm. most, is this one device. And so it's based upon UV light, ultraviolet light. And that's been around for 80 years or so. It's been around a long time. It's used in many different situations. The difference in the way we apply our technology and for which we've applied for a patent is that we do so right at the wavelength that is most efficient. Okay. But if it's the most efficient to deactivate the pathogen, it means it can be also the most dangerous to, you know, to humans. And so that means that the device that we have to build has to have the same mission assurance that not only I, but my crewmates and NASA and the military demanded of the, of the platforms we use there. In other words, safety is most maximum. Uh, however, the, the device has to deliver what we say it's going to do. And so we went through several iterations of designing this device and we're um, finishing our field testing, and we are going through additional reviews of, of how the system operates so that I'm comfortable as the CEO that when we put this somewhere, that it will do what it's supposed to do and then still do so at uh, most, you know, at the maximum safety um, for the individual. So the key parts that we do, again, is to use UVC light at its most efficient wavelength, and then we've designed the interior of the device um, to operate at a high flow rate. And what I mean by that is we can therefore take all of the volume of air that's in a room and cycle it through this device at a high speed within a matter of minutes. And mm -hmm. that just gives you a higher level of confidence that all of the pathogens have been eliminated. So are you using, are you, so you're using a lot of, you know, sen sensor technology in order to determine what pathogens are there, right? And then you're cycling it through, you know, your UVC, which it modifies, right? If I'm understanding correctly, it modifies the, the UVC in order to kill whatever pathogens it is. Um, so are you using, here's my question, are you using any 
AI to determine like what makes that determination like, okay, here is the pathogen, here's the UVC that has to happen. How am I determining what, how much UVC or whatever the case is, or how much airflow I need to have in order to cleanse this room? So excellent question, Brian. And you're looking at where Novosphere is going to be in about 18 months. <laughs> that's exactly right. No, that, that's perfect. So when I say we want to characterize it, and then we want the system to be self-learning and right. then apply the right technology. So the key words in that are modular. So we've uh -huh. got to be able for a user to say, all right, these are my main concerns. I want this attachment on to kill these types of pathogens, or I'm most interested at filtering out these types of uh, contaminants. And then um, we've got to make sure that it's integrated, which means not only is it applying the right technology, but the efficiency is tracked and it does self-monitoring. In other words, right. what is the condition? Has there been any failure? All of this is concepts and technologies that I learned throughout, of course, the military that you're starting to see in the cars that you drive, mm -hmm. right? So it's just the ability through sensors, which have become ubiquitous uh, to measure and track and then to develop the software that's forever evolving. And as you say, AI to continuously right. learn and apply the right, uh, you know, the right application uh, for the solution that you want. This is, this is our concept right through here. So you can see it's like a picture of a room there. Here we have a little schoolroom. And our thought is with our device, which is up here in this little corner, and this just shows the wavelengths here, that you can cycle the, the volume of air that's in that room several times through continuously mm -hmm. up to four times an hour. And therefore any new pathogens that come in are gonna go through the device and, and be uh, deactivated or inactivated, which is the actual term that mm -hmm. those people that look at these, um, these technologies actually use. Would this be a good, um, a good solution for airplanes as well? Um, you know, all that air that's in there and everybody says they always get sick, right? Uh, yeah, you, so here's my thinking on that. So I, I understand how large airliners work and so forth. And they bring in air from the outside mm -hmm. and that goes through the, the engine compressor and so forth. And then that's mixed in with the air uh, that's existing within the cabin of the aircraft anyway. And then it's temperature controlled and they use bypass valves and things of this nature in order to get the right temperature. I would say no, but here's where I think a device like this is useful is before the, the um, you know, before the passengers would board, you would use a portable version of this to clean out all of the air that's in the, uh -huh. that's in the plat in the aircraft as it is. And then I would have one in the jetway too. So this way, the people, as they come on board, they first of all know that the air surrounding them is, is purified. And then as they walk in that they know that the air is purified. When you get up to altitude and you're flying, uh, you're not going to have pathogens at 36,000 feet uh, at any sort of a number that would ever present a danger. Is that a fallacy then? I, it, you've heard that, right? That you go on an airplane and everybody's germs are in there. Is that is that kind of an old wives tale? No, I, I would say that anybody that's contaminated that would come on board would certainly, of course, spread the germs that are inside the cabin at that time. So this just provides a layer 
of, of um, defense against any pathogen. The rest of it has to be, uh, first of all, somebody has to go in and clean the surfaces, right? Mm -hmm. Because this device only purifies the air. Yeah. So you need to have the surfaces decontaminated. The people that enter should be certified as not being sick, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but this then, in a sense, would purify the air and just provides that other layer that's in there. Okay. Yeah. Because when, when the Nicolette was making fun of me, because when the pandemic first hit, I built like a UVC light box to just like throw my stuff in when I got home, like my keys or whatever, you know, sure. so, which is totally, yeah, which is totally different because it's hitting surface, not air. That is correct. That's a surface uh, yeah. solution that you were using there, Brian. Exactly. How does that, what, what, in crafting uh, those two devices, what makes them different than cleaning the air versus cleaning a surface um, from a design perspective? Well, there's, there's, so the first, the basic part of it is the concept is the same to use the UV light to deactivate mm -hmm. the viral pathogen or bacterial pathogen. And it does so by disrupting the DNA and the RNA of those you know, microscopic organisms. The difference is whether or not um, the UV light is transmitted and is visible to anyone else that's there. So if you're going to use a very highly effective UV light to deactivate a surface, and they do this in hospital rooms and uh, operating rooms and things of this nature, uh, you, you're not allowed to have anybody else in there because it's killing all of the um, contaminants on the surface but then if somebody's in there, you're exposed to the light. Our device, in a sense, is just designed to purify the air. Therefore, it's a closed system and none of the UV light is able to escape. So that's the main difference. Okay. Yeah. Invisible to, like, the, to the eye. I got you. Yeah, like even when I, when I built mine, what I had to do is I stuck, I, I believe it or not, I used a shoebox and I poked holes through it and had two UV <laughs> lights reflected down. And then I, I lined it with foil basically to get underneath and then prop things up so it could hit multiple angles of surface. I, yeah, you probably also were the, the, uh, the, the person that did uh, those science fair projects too. That sounds like- Yeah, I was, I was, yeah. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I was that kid. <laughs> I was that kid. Both. Nice job. You're a, okay, I'm a MacGyver. I'm a problem solver guy. That's right. And I call Brian when I need a problem solved. So. <laughs> but now we're pulling you. <laughs> well, hopefully I can help. So Paul, you've now, I mean, you've been on so many different sides of, of well, life really, but I, I was going to say originally astronaut versus business owner, right? Um, but you've yeah. also been in the military now. Mm -hmm. Do you think being a business, owning this business, right? Running this business is almost a little bit more challenging than the it's, other. It is. Yeah. I had a, a feeling you might say that. What, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, when, you know, in my previous efforts, when I, especially in the military and NASA, uh, I felt, and I was very fortunate enough to be at the point of, of something. In other words, I'm the executor of a system in order to achieve something. And that meant that I had a very wide group of highly trained and dedicated and mission-oriented people behind me. So for each mission launch at NASA, we would have tens of thousands on the ground that were supporting us 24 hours a day. And 
the untold number of hours to get the vehicle ready and to train us. And it's something that our nation does very well, right? We, we set this objective and, and NASA does a great job of instilling this desire to do this in our, our young people. Uh, so I, I could only focus on just that one thing and making sure I did what I was supposed to do to the best of my ability. When, you, when you're in a startup, it's not there. Right. When you're starting a company and you're starting to build it and to grow it, the others that are out there are, in a sense, potential competitors or they're uh, other stakeholders, but they don't have your end state in mind pretty much as you do. And so it's it becomes a much more difficult thing to gain traction with other groups to say, yes, this is why we think we're the best. And it takes continual work and persistence, which you and I, everyone here knows that you've got to be persistent in your dreams in order to achieve those. Uh, but I find this one a little bit harder because um, you don't have as much control over the outcome, right? So you've got to make sure that you're surrounded by good people, got a good plan and execute well. Um, yeah. But I don't normally, somebody isn't just giving me this huge team of people to, to solve the problem with. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, and I, you know, it's interesting because I, if we go back to one of the first things you say, and I don't want to misquote you here, but it's like, I want versus I am going to be, do you know what I mean? Like when you talk right. about being an astronaut mm -hmm. and, you know, being a, being a business owner or any, you know, anything you have to go, this is what I am now. I am this, not that I want to be this, or you have to see yourself in it. You have to just do, you know, so you have to own it. You have yeah. to own it. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Very good. Brian, I have a feeling I want to bring something up real quick. Do you want to do you want to ask Paul when people are going to land on Mars? Because oh, I, I know this is a yeah, topic. I, Brian yeah. talks about this all the time. So I think okay, Paul. Paul. Okay, Paul. So when? Yes, yes. I was waiting. I thought you had another question because I was definitely going to ask that. So Paul, when do you think? When do you think we're going to have people on Mars? Yeah, that's an extremely good question. Let me tell you uh, that had we continued with our space program after Apollo. In other words, if after Apollo 17, if we had continued on with the next um, program that would have expanded upon that, we'd have already been there by now. We wow. were on a very sustainable path to do that. Uh, when I think back on what we succeeded in doing in the 60s with the technology we had then. Right. In other words, just for your knowledge, here's the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. And it had five computers that controlled most of the entire shuttle on ascent and entry, four of which were in sync and did everything together. And then one was a backup, but each of those only had 256K of memory, <laughs> right? I, I can't even imagine how much is in the mobile phone that I'm holding here. Uh, so we succeeded by doing a lot with even this vehicle. Mm -hmm. uh, and had we continued back then, we would already been there by now. Now, where can we go from this point? Well, we're on a great path, I think, because two reasons. First of all, we still have NASA that's developing the heavy lift vehicles. And that's something that a nation has to provide, right? That, con that continued emphasis on building those very heavy lift vehicles that can take you to places like Moon and Mars and carry up large payloads because... Right. 
heavier the thing is that you want to carry up, the larger the rocket has to be. At the same time, we've developed the commercial aspect of it through SpaceX mm -hmm. and Blue Origins. And mm -hmm. that is a, an excellent, uh, that is an excellent side capability, but it's, it's becoming the prime capability actual for many aspects of space life for getting to low earth orbit and so forth. So now we've expanded our effort. And so I think with work with our international partners and so forth, NASA will lay the groundwork and I believe it will be sometime in probably mid 2030, 2035 somewhere is when we'll actually do the moon mission. I mean, not moon, but the Mars mission. The question that keeps going back and forth at NASA is, is it moon first or NASA or go to Mars, you know, right. Like Mars. And you've got proponents on both sides. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just anxious. You know, I would have thought I was going to be the one that goes to Mars, right? That was me back <laughs> in 1996. That's the reason why I'm here. Hey, but, I'm, I'm hoping you still get there. I'm hoping we all yeah, do. Well, you know, <laughs> I'd be older than John Glenn was when he came and flew with uh, NASA again uh, back in 1997, which is an interesting story in and of itself. But we'll never, you know, I won't do that. But as I always talk to young kids, there's yeah. somebody right now around the world, some young boy or girl, I'm thinking, don't know how old they are, mm -hmm. be that first person that's going to step on on Mars. And, yeah. you know, if you instill that dream in some young kids, then they go, hey, that really could be me. And who knows where it'll take them. Maybe not to Mars, but to something else they want to do. To Jupiter. No. I, boy. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty far. <laughs> yeah, she's getting skipped further and yeah, further. I'm getting there. Out of <laughs> <laughs> Listen, you can you can be anything, right? <laughs> you can go anywhere. <laughs> see a neat picture. So, can you see that? I think yep. you can, can't you? Mm -hmm. Yep. So, this is not from the space shuttle. This is from the Cassini spacecraft, which is no longer used, but um, was launched. Um, I think in the late 1990s, early 2000s, but went to Saturn and of course some of the other big planets back there, but at one point was in the perfect position below the rings of Saturn to look out and pick up this little blue dot, which is what? That's you. That's you. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And then this is a picture that we took from the shuttle on my mission and I always like to point out to young adults and children, this thin blue, beautiful band is the atmosphere that protects you and I, you know, from the, from the harsh realities of space. Yeah. yeah. I so, get goosebumps. Awesome. I get so Isn't excited. It? That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, Paul, this was so much fun. This was a lot of fun. Um, can you, uh, do you have any, any other, anything else to show us? By the way, <laughs> or, do you have any, I'm I wall in the background, Nicolette. He's really? got, he's got a God, lot. You like my adventure wall, yeah. right? <laughs> so I, I, I think of it as my storyboard or, or adventure wall. And sometimes I'll talk to you, young adults or children, you know, via Facebook or whatever. And they'll say, go pull something off the wall. And, and each one represents a story of basically a little bit of my life in a bit. And That's so awesome. it's been kind of fun to do that. Um, now, you know, I know you got a lot of, lot of uh, probably science and, and uh, uh, as you said, you're focusing on the engineering side right through here. So they'll, they'll probably be pleased with that. Those are M&Ms, right? Uh -huh. So 
that was my favorite food on orbit. I like to say after we did, <laughs> <That's awesome. laughs> after we had a hard mission, you know, it, it was a good way to relax and pull out some M&Ms and then relax after doing us, you know, I didn't do the spacewalks, but I directed the spacewalks. And then afterwards you'd pull out some pistachio nuts or some M&Ms and throw them back and forth to each other, float them back and forth to each other on right. the space shuttle or the space station. Uh, does it take a while to get used to that feeling? So that is a really interesting question. And, and I'm glad you've asked it because I think of spaceflight as it's, uh, it is really probably one of the best, it's the best descriptors of things that are opposite. But getting used to being on an orbit does take a little while because your body is not meant to be there. And even though I had a, a tremendous amount of experience flying high performance aircraft and things of this nature, when I got on orbit the first time, it was hard to adapt because you and I are not meant to be there, especially our, our attitude control system. In other words, you and I know which way is up because we look out and we can see the floor and the ceiling and the sky. And so immediately we write ourselves and then gravity is telling us our feet are on the floor. But when you don't have that, then mm -hmm. you lose that reference. And then your vestibular system, which is the semicircular canals in your ears and all those fluids are not floating properly and moving then your body goes, uh, where am I? What are you doing to me? I've never been here before. And so I felt on orbit for the first time uh, for the first few hours that I was doing somersaults, even though I was sitting or strapped into my, uh, you know, the seat of the space shuttle, I felt as if I was doing these turns and so forth. And it took a while for all of that to, to dampen out. And then over the course of a few days, I went through some other types of of um, bodily adaptations. In other words, you're, I felt like I had the flu and the stomach was upset, but you work through those. But then on my second mission, none of that happened. And that tells you how quickly adaptive we humans are to various environments, right? So we learn how to, to live in these places and make, make changes so that we can still operate and do the best we can. Space still though, it's a tough place to live. You know, I give a lot of credit to those that have been up there six months. That is so cool. I've had so much fun, Paul. Thank you so much for sharing this with us. We we had a lot of fun. Brian, is there anything else you want to ask Paul before? Yeah, he, he, answered my, he answered my Mars question. He answered your Mars question. Okay. So well, <laughs> tell you what, if it's 2035, I'm going to look both of you up and we'll go out and we'll have a pizza on that and say, All well, right, you're ready. Yeah. <laughs> you got it. You got it. Our treat. Our treat. Our treat. Okay. Be my <laughs> Brian's treat. So my treat. <laughs> <laughs> can you please let everybody know where they can learn more about Novosphere and yourself, please? Sure. Well, we're on Facebook, of course. We have a website, uh, novosphere.com. Uh, you can just do a search for us on the internet and we're there. Myself, you can find me um, also um, on the internet, both from my past work that I've done and then also through Novosphere. Um, and we look forward to hearing from anybody if they want to reach out to us. Our contact information is there, and we'd like to tell everyone about what we're doing. And, you know, I learned about rarefied and important and the purity of air, how important that was from space. I mean, that was the number one thing you worried about on ascent, on entry, and on orbit is your air supply, even for those doing the spacewalks, as you can imagine. And so I'm really happy now to be working with the team that's going to try and do that for all of us as we go about our normal day, daily activities, especially in this difficult times.
Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Paul. We appreciate your time. Well, great. Thank you for uh, inviting me. I was pleased to meet both of you. I enjoyed reading about you and I wish all of you, both of you great success.